So hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of HR Circle, the global HR podcast, which we sometimes call the HR Circus, that explores human resources from a worldwide point of view. Today's topic is The Survey Says, the voice of HR and sapient research with Chief Research Officer Stacey Harris. Um, Stacy is the Chief Research Officer and Managing Partner of Sapient Insights Group, and there she oversees the industry research work, um, including the esteemed annual HR conference, which is, I think, in its 24th year. Um, and she's also very well known in the research area and HR tech area, recently named one of the top 100 HR tech influencers. So we're really proud to, to have her on our call here today. And Stacy, before we even get started, we, while we were waiting for you to join, Karen and I were kind of talking about the name of your organization, which is Sapien Insights, and I'm not—I think I'm saying that right. But we want to be clear that it's not an SAP company. It, it is not an SAP company. No, um, Sapien Insights Group came out of—we um, were really trying to figure out a name. It, as as I had noted a while back, um, this is a new entity that we have started in the last year and a half, and it came out of the word wisdom. Sapient means wisdom, because we were trying to think of something that sort of explains sort of the kind mm -hmm. of research that we tried to provide to the industry. So it is not an SAP company. <laughs> but, but thank with you that for the said, And with that said, right, I mean, you do get research results from SAP, but also all customers using all kinds of software. And we did say this was global and, you know, obviously you and I are sitting in the US, but um, you have a, the voice of the world. I know you travel a lot and the research is global. So without further ado, let's ask you the first question. Is the voice of HR the one that HR tech firms are hearing? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so again, thank you for a wonderful introduction and for, for the oversight of the research. And as you noted, we've been running this research for 24 years. And over the years, one of our big goals has been to continue to increase the global presence of the research. Um, and we get we're really excited this year we had over 15 percent increase in the overall participation of the survey so this year we had 2177 individual organizations wow and to your point you know we get you know 2177 organizations who respond to somewhere around 200 plus questions in our survey so just to give scale and scope of how big this this effort is right in the market and we do it every year and our vendors you know, so is the voice of HR technology what the vendors are hearing? I think that's a that's such a loaded question, right? <laughs> because I think what we what we see from our survey is that people are hungry to share their insight and share what they're seeing and what what's happening in the HR technology market and their user experiences and what they feel their vendors are doing really well for them or not doing really well for them. And the challenge I think is oftentimes that each vendor, because we cover the entire market, oftentimes only hears a silo of, of either the really loud people who are complaining mm -hmm. or the people in their organization who are you know, their biggest or largest clients, but all the people in the middle oftentimes lose their voice. And I think that's part of what we try and do in our research is to give everybody out there an opportunity to say, you know, my voice has matter. You know, the fact that you don't have, um, you know, total global payroll or the fact that maybe you don't have a a specific link to a specific integration I need, that's important just as much for me as it is for everyone else. And so, yes, um, we have over, we cover over, boy, I counted this up um, about two years ago, so it might be a little off, but I think somewhere in the range of 
250 different vendors in our research. That's wow. like sort of the total number that get listed or added. And we have over 56 different applications that we ask organizations about. So just to wow. give sort of how big that gets. That's crazy. That's really massive. Yes. Yeah. How, how, how do you represent different... I, I was uh, trying to wrap my head around the question I wanted to ask. Uh, how do you make sure that you find beyond the representation of vendors, but the vendors in my experience tend to be in a few locations in the world. How do you make sure that the, that the, the re global representation geographically and not only from the point of type of application and vendors? Ah, yes. Mm. Uh, so the way that we reach our audience and the way that we reach our survey participants is not through sort of a single list. Um, basically, we have around 70 to 75 different what we call distributors every year. And they are a mixture of, some of them are the vendors. We do allow the vendors to distribute if they would like. Um, but we also reach out through all of the media uh, magazines and um, local associations in each of the regions that we can access. Uh, we also reach out through um, groups like this. And um, Jared Pazicek was amazing, right, with his, his list on LinkedIn. He used mm -hmm. to get us a, a huge number of SAP participants, right? So we, we do a lot of influencer lists and a lot of influencer outreach efforts. Um, and then we also go through um, entities that are, that are more um, sort of industry, um, um, like we have like education associations and we have um, global um, uh, government associations. So def different sort of um, non-HR specific, but broadly across different sort of industries um, that we also go through. And so that kind of distribution model allows us to reach the widest possible audience. So for example, HRM Asia is one of our partners in the Asia Pacific market. And, you know, they help us reach all of the Asia Pacific islands, as well as all of the mainland China and um, all of even up through Australia, where we also have a huge partnership with Sherm Tech India, who gets us usually on average 200 to 300 responses every year just from India alone. So that's sort of how we build up our, our different audience bases. Um, and the vendors do distribute. So, so don't get me wrong, it, it, that 70 includes everybody. So, yeah. What's the um, roughly like the geographical spread of the companies that you get responses from? So we have this year, um, and every year it's slightly different, but this year we have over, like I said, 2,177 organizations after we clean the data. So that's just important to note that that's individual organizations after cleaning. And this year we had 70% in the North America market and 30% outside. So we're statistically significant in the North America market and outside of the U.S. we're trend analysis level, which is, is, is sort of um, we in the EMEA market and the Asia Pacific market, not counting Australia because we count Australia somewhat separately. Um, we have about 13% um, in each of those markets um, of data sets. Uh, and then we have about 3% uh, in the sort of um, uh, South African sort of region and South America regions. Um, and then we have another percentage that kind of goes across the sort of the non sort of labeled areas, basically. So it, it totals out in general that we have our largest buckets as, as far as international in the European market and in the Asia Pacific market. 
not counting Australia. Okay. And why do we count Australia separately? Um, we count Australia separately just because their data set tends to sway differently the rest of the Asia Pacific market. Really? Um, it, it, yeah, particularly Australia has um, a different maturity level with their HR technology oftentimes or a different approach to technology, right? Um, it's a little bit more um, in line and similar with what we see in the European markets and in the US markets, particularly I think because of the, the English speaking um, levels there, right? They, they just have the ability to reach and access more technology that's built in the U.S. and the uh, European markets. Um, in the um, the other areas of the Asia Pacific market, like so, when we, for example, a really good example is um, when we look at sort of the um, the highest uh, number of vendors that are being used, or, or the or the top vendors being used in those markets. Australia tends to to follow very similarly what we see in Europe and what we see in the US as far as they're going to be an SAP or an Oracle or a Workday, right? In the Asia yeah. Pacific market, you're much more likely maybe to see like a Ramco show up, right? Or you're much more likely to see a, a people um, strong show up in those data sets from, from a high usage percentages. So it, it just gives us, I think, a, a better mix of our analysis. When you talk about the 30% that's not North America, what trends do you see? Yeah, the 30% that's not North America, well, it's interesting. We had this conversation um, as we were preparing for this, is, is this big thing that's going on in the market, right? There's four big, um, what we call them mega trends in the market right now. And one of them is obviously the post-pandemic work environment. And we're saying post in the most light way, because we know so many, so many countries and regions are still managing and dealing with it. But sort of the the now that we know that we're going to live in more of a hybrid environment, what does that look like? Um, the other big mega trend that we're seeing in the market right now, obviously, is the skills gap. Every country, every region is, is, is skills gap. That's North America or not. But we're also hearing out of the North American market the, the, the major conversation about big reg resignations and labor shortages. And there is some question, is that a global issue or is that just a U.S.-centric issue, right? And what we're finding in our data that the resignation number is not a global number, as far as we can see. Actually, I went back after our conversation, and we do turnover. We ask organizations for their average turnover, and I and you can't share sort of like an average number because it's very different by industry. But if you look across region, you do start to see in, interesting differences, and it is up the resignation, the average turnover of, of voluntary rates in the U.S. It's up by about. 10%, right, from our last year's data set. In the European market, it's actually down, down by almost five or 6%. And in the Asia Pacific market, it's about where it was at. And it was already high, right? Like it was higher than the average in, in some of the other areas. So I do not think we're seeing sort of a bigger resignation, at least from our data, in those markets. But what is lower is the ability to attract top talent. So we also track that metric every year, and we are seeing that across the board, whether you're in North America, Europe, or the Asia Pacific market, that all three of those categories have lower than last year and considerably lower in the Asia Pacific and the North America market, um, the ability to attract top talent. It is lower in the European market, just not like... Like it's a 15% drop in the North America market. It's a little bit more like a six or 7% drop in the European market. So we think some of this is, is different globally from what we've been talking about megatrends. 
But we do wonder, and I think, Carrie, you brought this up um, when we talked about it, is, is European numbers just a little delayed because of the time frame that it takes for employees to make decisions and the amount of time they have to give for resignations and the right. amount of time companies have to sort of make those decisions? Or is this truly that they're going to sort of, they're a little bit more like a bubble in this market, right? I'm really curious to see if the numbers, what the numbers will tell us in six months. I feel like it's probably a mixed bag because there is probably both. On one side that things are delayed in the numbers, but also that because of job security over here, there is not only a delay, but some people who may stay up to when they can move somewhere. While in the US, we're seeing people resigning, even if they don't know where, because they know they'll find something and they find something fast. So there are many differences. It's fascinating. There's also trends around how the, um, I guess, the social aspect of society vary with the, with the US. For example, in some European markets, um, uh, employers were getting the salaries of their employees subsidized at 60%, 70%, depending on the country, which meant they were able to fully retain the workforce. While we saw in the US, there were companies that would just lay off large parts of the staff and then wait till the, mm -hmm. till the economy picked up and then try and hire them back. Um, successfully or unsuccessfully but there's yeah. a big difference there in terms of how the how, how the state the government whatever you want to refer to it are able to subsidize um, employment to keep people in a job during uh, during the kind of lockdowns and the other kind of economic dips that we saw over the last 12 18 months yeah and, and I think there's a real a real conversation here about you know, what is the better, you know, it, was it better to turn things? Because really, you were right, Luke, like, like what happened in the US was this huge cut, like we saw employee numbers drop dramatically. And then this sort of like, we're going to pick people back up again. Was that churn good? Or was it better to, to, to subsidize and hold on to your talent, right? Like, and I don't, I, I think that that is yet to see, right? Definitely. I think we all can have our own private opinion on that. Uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess there are several points of view. On one side, I think from the point of view of relaunching an economy, it's a lot faster and easier if people are still employed rather than having to yes. go and struggle to find them. Yeah, On absolutely. the other hand, businesses might survive better if they don't have to go through the expense to keep everybody on board. So yeah. tough. <laughs> Very tough. <laughs> now, now, the one stat that we haven't talked about is women globally. I will say that wherever you look, whether that's Europe, US, or the States, but more so, again, I think Europe's a little bit more of a bubble because of the better social, um, uh, societal and social sort of um, standards that are put in place there, right? But what we saw in the US and the Asia Pacific market was huge drops in women in the workplace, right? Um, and we did see some of that in the European market as well. And one of the big questions is, Will we see that number? And like, we heard numbers in the States that we dropped back to like levels of 1984. That's how low it got wow. here in the States That's of women working in the workplace. Yeah. Um, will they come back to the workplace in the Asia Pacific markets? Have we created a situation where we, where, where we lost so much time that, you know, skill sets are not sort of going to be able to, to, to ramp up? I don't know the answer to that. I just know that there is something that we globally have to address, which is women in the workforce um, have to be sort of acknowledged that when we have these major issues, 
who's taking care of the family and who's taking care of the you know, uh, children becomes a big conversation. My hope is that it would become more balanced. <laughs> that, you know, we wouldn't all, I think part of the reason we have trouble maintaining women in the workforce is because our work culture, especially in North America is so difficult. It's very demanding. Uh, so it's very difficult to do anything else other than work yeah. and send your kids to daycare. Stacey, what, what else are you saying? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I think it's actually, from that point of view, it's similar in other places. Maybe the work culture is not as demanding, but the culture is a lot stronger from the point of view who takes care of the children. It's still or, or children or of the mom or all the older people in the family. There is a caregiving that still is pertaining to the woman rather than to the other family members, let's say. Yes. Yeah. And I think it came out even in European in the numbers that I don't think it was, I mean, the societal issue that we don't offer daycare and we don't offer sort of family leave in some, at, at the levels they do in Europe and the United States, that's a given. But I think even in other countries, we saw this expectation that women were the ones that were going to step back and take care of the household, right? Um, which again, right or wrong, I think everybody has their own opinion about that. But I do think that it leaves a, a, a gender and a pay gap issue that we've really got to consider in the market that's got to be made up, right? So. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's also a logical choice at some point because people are pragmatic. But up to when the women are in a lower pay range, as, as we are today, if you actually have the, the, the man and the woman and they both, someone has to take care of the family or the people who are homesick or whatever. And if someone has to take a step back, well, the pragmatic choice is to say the one with the lower paycheck will take a step back. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yes. So what else have you seen, Stacey? I mean, up until this year with COVID and everything, the big drive has always been cloud, cloud, cloud. Everyone's gonna move to cloud. Is that still the hot topic or, you know, are we seeing something, some different emphasis now? Yeah. So funny enough, you know, um, we might, we might do a special sort of breakout from some of our international data, but for our aggregate data this year, we chose not to show deployment numbers and models just because the cloud conversation has become less interesting to the audience who's reading our research, right? They're kind of at this point, what, what option do we have? If we're going to buy, we're going to buy cloud, Right. And right. to know that there's still 30% and that hasn't really budged a lot in the last several years that are using some form of on-premise is interesting, but it doesn't tell me a lot about where to go or what to do with my, my work, right? right. Um, so I think what we're seeing is, is it's not so much, I mean, we definitely heard cloud as a conversation. If you weren't there, COVID caused you to rethink where your systems were at so you could access them. So there was a lot of um, where can I put a virtual private network? Do I get things in a um, public cloud environment, right? Um, where's my data set up? Those kind of conversations that we're having and we're, we're putting into the research this year. What I, what I do think though is, is sort of the other big themes that came out of everything is that beyond technology and where it sits and technology and whether or not, you know, sort of how big it's, how many it's growing. Like there's just a number of applications that are growing. Um, what we are, we did see is a lot of conversation this year about how, what the applications were being used for. And we did see about a 10% increase in the percentage of organizations that were using their HR technology to inform their um, 
to, to inform their people decisions at a workforce level. So, so basically, and then to inform their business strategy. So there's sort of two, two metrics we ask about. We also ask about, does it replace paper-based? Is it used for compliance? And is it used for getting information in and out? And that's always at 80 and 90%. That's what people are using the systems for. But when we ask about whether they're using it to inform uh, uh, people decisions um, for the organization's um, outcomes, or if it's using being used to inform the business strategy, which is the longer-term conversations, we generally are stuck at that 54 and 34% range. This year it jumped up to about 61%. And I think we were at like 41 or 42% on the sort of informing the business strategy. That was a 10% gain um, and the largest jump we've seen in the five years now that we've asked that question. What other hot topics? Experience management, is that a hot one? Yeah, I mean, you're I mean, hearing all this stuff in the tech companies. Do people, does HR really care about that? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, if you're talking about the, the big trend topics, right, experience conversations are, are big, um, being promoted a lot, I think, by industry analysts as well as the vendors themselves, right? Um, the other big hot topics that we heard were conversations about um pay equity, pay compensation analysis. There's a lot of conversation about sort of how you're building pay into the conversation in different ways, whether that's in recruiting, in sort of um, your analysis of diversity, equity, and inclusion inside your organization from a social perspective, right? Um, so that was a big hot topic at the HR technology conference that we were just at. There was also a lot of conversation about um, skills management and skills development. And so the question is, you know, we're seeing in our data this year um, that 26% of organizations, so it's the largest percentage of our data set of organizations who are planning to either evaluate or purchase in the next 12 to 24 months a skills management application. Usually for all the other applications, that's like at 10 or 12%, right? You know, it's, it's you just, the applications don't have that much interest. You know, you get, you get a nice size of, of, of sort of another 10 or 10%, 12, 12% growth probably in the next year or, 12, or two years. But skills management is up to that 25, 26%, which is pretty high to have a quarter of the market saying, we're planning to look at either buying or really evaluating a skills management application. And that feeds into the conversation. We only, we asked again, whether or not organizations had an internal mobility um, uh, process in place. Only 22% of organizations said they had an internal mobility process in place. And one of the number one reasons that they had not put internal mobility in place in their organization was because they didn't have skills data or because of the culture of the organization, not because they didn't have the technology. So I think those two conversations go hand in hand. Yeah, you can have the technology and yeah. not really put the processes in place that you need. Yeah. But, but also, I wonder what the what the technology is actually offering in that space, right? We've just seen with SAP, for example, uh, uh, my, pick on my area specialty, they just launched their center of capabilities because they haven't historically managed skills and competencies so well within the system. Even things like the job architecture, which is a whole big conversation and a whole other kind of one to go down is also something that's not particularly well handled in those systems and certainly I remember going back 10 years that was a very big deal I spent a lot of time working with customers on building out succession planning processes and looking at competencies and skills and how they can 
um, identify successes and, and training plans based on skills, competencies, all these bits and pieces and how they would cascade those to an organization and a system using job architecture and things. So I'm wondering if that is an area um, that we're seeing maybe being a little bit more weak in, in, in HR technology systems and maybe that's what's driving that. Or do you have other data points that are kind of maybe indicating the reason why there's such a strong demand there for, for, for you know, best of breed competency, uh, sorry, best of breed skills systems? Yeah, I, it's, it's a good conversation, right? I don't know. I, I do think that the, 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 I don't want to say older applications, but applications who have built up over time around job descriptions, which is, which is different than a job architecture, right? And that have built up over time around a individual personal profile, which is, again, different than a skills profile, are, are struggling to figure out how they remap back to this more to more granular level right um it, it's 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 very similar to the old day where every and when we when we first put out systems they were tied to a department and a job code well that didn't work really well because we had to get to at least a profile level right. and to a job description now we got to go one level deeper basically to what i think is what you're talking about luke yeah mm-hmm. very I complex. always wonder what is um and I think we're getting close to an end of this discussion that could go on for many hours. But yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering also how much uh, the, the fact we're seeing, we're seeing the type of skills that are important to company evolving very dramatically in the last few years. It used to be a pretty standard set, always the same. But right now, there are new skills that are coming up. There are new positions that are starting to be described from scratch essentially and sometimes not even they're they're not even described sometimes they're just invented because we need something there but we don't know what that person really will need to do and i wonder what is the percent on i wonder how we can even measure that change because it's uh, i know it's big yeah yeah i wonder if there are less specialized positions than there were in the past in corporations you know, so that we bring people in and they can do lots of different things, partly because, you know, we have the technology and we're tech savvy. Yeah. Well, I think that exactly. Yeah, work changes every day, right? You know, what right. we're brought in from a job description is not what you do for the most part, right? No, um, no, not at all. Which, which I think gets back to exactly what we were saying is that you can't, you can't track me by a job role because the job role is not really the thing that matters anymore. You need to track me at a skills level and an activities level, uh, which is the job architecture, which is all the pieces that right. go into the roles and then start to almost granular build up. Right. And, and it, it just means that, that the systems have to think differently, I think. And, and I think your, your point care about, a, um, you know, hard skills are really easy to track. Soft skills are not, and mm-hmm. a lot of where the market is heading is the ability. Like I, I've, I can tell you, I've been out looking at industry analysts because we're we're looking at hiring someone new from an analytics perspective. I've been like, well, what's what's the big job description in any analyst thing? And it's the ability to learn. Well, well, how do I? What is that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> to learn and grow. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Isn't that true yeah. in every position? In fact. 
more so in research, but it should be true in every position, in fact. It really should. It's it's such a different world, you know, before you went to college for a certain thing, you went and you did that work and that was it. I mean, maybe you learned a few more things along the way, but your role in life was kind of established. I mean, today I just see like every six months, there's something new to learn uh, that can take your career in a different direction. Yeah. And, and as wrapping up this conversation, because I know we, we wanted to try and sort of give us a, a time frame here, but I, I think the other um, trends I mentioned, like experience platforms, right? And, and the, the, the focus that we're seeing on this um, space around sort of analytics and, and, and artificial intelligence, all that sort of tying together, I think it feeds into this conversation in one way is that there's a lot of emphasis on making a better environment, which means I, I can either get to what I need to faster, it's prettier, it's, it's more user-friendly. There's not a lot of emphasis on should we be doing it in the first place, which I think is one of the big conversations we have to have with HR, right? Which is, yeah. you know, should we be trying to get everybody to fill out a skills profile? Does that really make sense? Uh, or should we be using the role, the things they're doing to, to, to then define what a skill is? And we sort of come up with it. There's just, I think a lot of conversation about, we're asking employees and managers to fill in a lot of information that they may or may not really understand or have, right? And, and, and yes, it's a prettier interface to do it, but is that really the best thing we should be doing? So totally agree. Well, I guess we should wrap up this conversation. We're trying to keep this to a minimum, but so much information, a lot more to talk about, I think. Um, and Stacy, we want to have you back. We want to talk about the book that you've written. Um, so we'll sign off for now for this episode of the HR Circus, HR Circle, um, and be back to you again soon, Stacy. Yeah, looking forward to it. Super. Thank you so much, Stacey. It was lovely and always great to hear from you. Absolutely. 100%.